Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. What can we say on the basis of Scripture about people who have lived and died having never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is this latest trend in evangelicalism of faith deconstruction, and what's a proper view of the Virgin Mary? Some of the questions that our listeners would like to have answered. It's time to do that on this Wednesday, December the 6th. Joining us to respond to your unanswered Bible questions, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He's a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Oh, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, welcome. Thank you. Pastor Wolf Miller from Matthew, what about those who were born and died having never heard the gospel? Do they have a chance at salvation? And then a second question, probably even more thorny, why does God choose some, not others? We could maybe start with that last one. It already has a Latin name. Francis Pieper, the old Lutheran theologian, called this the cross of the theologian, the crux theologorum, because it requires the putting to death of our reason it's not only that we don't know the answer, but that we can't know the answer, or even more, that every attempted answer, every rational answer to this question, why some are saved and not others, is wrong. And it's disastrously wrong. Here's what the Bible tells us. Number one, that God desires all to be saved. This is universal grace. And not only does he desire all to be saved, but that the death of Christ is for the sins of the world, for all people. We do not see a limited atonement in the Bible. In fact, the opposite, a very unlimited atonement, that Christ died for all, even his enemies, and that God, the Holy Spirit. So it's not just the Father who desires all to be saved, and Christ who died for all people, but that the Holy Spirit also is calling all people. So that this universal grace is the act of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's one. The second is that we are saved by grace alone, and this excludes all works or activities that we would do so we cannot say that we have any part in our salvation. It does 100% the work of God through the Spirit, through the Word, to create and to sustain faith in us so that we pass from death to life eternal when we die and on the last day when we go to see the Lord's face. So the Bible teaches universal grace and grace alone and the reality of some coming into condemnation, the reality of hell. And those three biblical truths just don't fit together. And so the way that theological systems have tried to answer the question is by removing one. So you have Calvinism, which removes universal grace. You have the free will theologians, Arminianism, and, and all the other free will theologies, including Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, which remove grace alone. They make salvation synergistic. You could also get out of the trouble by removing the reality of hell, becoming a universalist. Although 
oddly enough, universalism normally doesn't care about universal grace or grace alone. They just throw out everything. But you could take out one of those truths to make it fit. But the problem is the Bible won't permit it. The Bible gives us all three of those assertions. And so when we get to the question, why are some saved and not others? The answer is we don't know. We can take one step closer to the answer by saying the reason some are saved is because God saves them. And the reason some are damned is because they are damnable. They've deserved hell. But that still doesn't answer the question. It's just a half step closer, uh, farther along what the Bible tells us, but it doesn't get there. And this helps us, though, with the first question. Because what of those people who never have an opportunity to hear the gospel? Do they have a chance at salvation? The reason why this question troubles us so much is because we are tempted to think that we don't deserve hell. I think we think of it like this, like we're standing on the edge of a pit, and when we go to hell, the Lord is pushing us into that pit. He walks by and pushes us in. There you go. You're going to go and burn. The biblical doctrine is the opposite. We are, in fact, conceived in the pit, and to rescue us, the Lord comes down into the pit and picks us up and hauls us out, so that to be cast away forever from the Lord is truly what we deserve. I suppose it's a little picture of grace that we don't feel that and we don't see it in ourselves, but it's true. It's taught by the Bible. And so this question reminds us that we are, in fact, the deservers of God's wrath. And for those of us who don't experience it, who the Lord has called through the gospel and enlightened with his gifts, we are called to pure joy and thankfulness that the Lord has, in fact, saved us. There's maybe one more quick thing to add to this, and that, and that is, and I'm stepping out a little bit onto the edge of what I know here, but I think that we need to lean into this doctrine that it's not only the Father who desires all to be saved and the Son who has died for all, but the Holy Spirit who is after all people. And this, the, this universal work of the Holy Spirit through the Word to call all people to Christ, it pushes on what we think we see when it looks to us like there are some people who died apart from the opportunity of hearing the gospel. And we just want to say, I'm not sure if that's the case. I think that the great love of God for us in Christ means that the Holy Spirit is getting the gospel to all people. And if we can't understand how he's doing it, we confess that his work, just like the dying work of Christ and the desire for all to be saved to the Father, that the Holy Spirit's love for humanity is also universal. I don't want to press much farther than that, but I don't think there's going to be room on the judgment day for anybody to say, well, that's not fair. I think everybody on the judgment day will look at the judgment of God and say, yes, that's right when he condemns someone, and yes, that's good when he saves someone. Pastor Ketchermeyer, a question from Noah. Can you explain the chronology of Ezra chapter 4? The temple hasn't been built yet. The tech jumps forward to a letter to Artaxerxes, then hops back to Darius, and the temple is built after Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to Israel. Am I correct that Ezra 4, 7 through 23 happens well after the rest of the book of Ezra? What's the problem there? Well, I think that when we look at the text here, what we want to see is how Ezra is describing these events that take place. So he starts off with verse 1 saying, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers and houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. 
and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days before. I mean, so here you have this whole uh, situation before what was happening with Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel was trying to rebuild the temple, and this whole rebuilding of the temple starts with uh, Cyrus around 535. The exiles are coming back. They're starting to rebuild. And under Zerubbabel, these things were halted because these people were complaining. Now, of course, these were people who would later on be the uh, Samaritans who kind of make this claim that we worship Yahweh in the same way that you do, which is not actually accurate because they do not worship it in the way of the institution of worship with the words of Moses and all the prophets. So it's a syncretistic, unionistic type worship that they want to get going here, that we do the same thing as you, which is not true. And so that halting of the the whole temple rebuilding project stopped during the days of Zerubbabel. And so you have that back with King Cyrus, king of Persia. And you had these events, there was a complaint that was filed then. And then you have it in verse four, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against him to frustrate their purposes. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this thing was going on even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you kind of have this background of these things were taking place in the past. And then in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And so in the days of Artaxerxes, so now what you have here is Ezra is referring to a letter in his time. So we're we're looking around somewhere in in the 400s, mid 400s or so in Ezra's time with this whole rebuilding taking quite some time to take place. So yes, in a way, what you have Ezra doing is referring to events that took place in the past and then referring to a a document in his own day uh, written to Artaxerxes to show that this is kind of what has been happening ever since those days prior with Zerubbabel. So I I think we just want to see this as a, a way that scripture writes and tells these events kind of like circles around getting to the point that these people are constantly trying to prevent the rebuilding of the temple itself. David has a question. He asks, as he listens in Missouri, he says, Pastor Wolf Miller, why is it that depending on which divine service setting we are using, the congregation says, and also with you or alternatively, and with your spirit in response to the address, the Lord be with you. I have heard that they mean the same thing from people, but from others that thy spirit has to do with God's Holy Spirit. It surely cannot be both. Can you help sort out why these variations exist and how we ought to rightly understand what the congregation is supposed to be meaning when we respond at this point in the liturgy? Thanks for all you do. I like this one. It's a kind of liturgical nerdy question, but I've got a theory about it. And it goes like this, that with thy spirit refers to the gift of ordination. We know that when we ordain a pastor, we lay hands on him and we pray for the Holy Spirit. And you remember the kid at the back who says to his dad, hey, I think we should have called a guy who had the Holy Spirit already. But we know that every baptized Christian has the Holy Spirit, but that the Holy Spirit comes on us to give us the things needed for the vocations that he calls us to. And not only do we have that general promise in the Bible, but we have that specific promise when it comes to the office of preaching, that the Spirit will accompany the work of the Word. So when a man is put in the office, we pray for the Holy Spirit, we sing Venite Creator Spiritus, we deck the church in red so the Holy Spirit comes, and that man is set apart for the preaching of the Word. And and that shows up in the ancient liturgy, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, 
the congregation is reminding the pastor of his ordination. In fact, I, whenever the congregation says that to me, I, I now try to pause and remember that they're in a way, just like in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a reminder of our baptism, and with thy spirit comes to me as a reminder of my ordination. And it comes in the liturgy in these transitions where we're moving from congregational prayer to the pastor offering the prayer on behalf of the congregation. So if you wanted to paraphrase it, it'd be something like this. We're all praying together, and then the pastor says, can I take over for a minute? And the congregation says, that's why we called you. <laughs> the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. In other words, the congregation is reordaining this man to stand before the altar and offer petitions and prayers on behalf of the people. So after the Nunc Dimittis, after the Glory in Celsius for the Collect, after these places where we're singing our prayers and praises together, the pastor turns to the congregation and they re-put him in place to offer those prayers. I think that understanding of ordination was lost at some point in the guys who were doing the liturgy. And my guess is that the Lord be with you and also with you is a reflection of that understanding being lost. And so it's just a little bit lazy. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but it really misses this great joy of it. The last thing to note, though, is that there's one place in the liturgy where it's different, and that's the Pax. That's after the words of institution have been spoken. And now the Lord Jesus has placed his body and his blood there on the table for us to come and eat and drink with this promise of the forgiveness of all of our sins. And there the pastor takes the body and the blood in the bread and the wine and addresses the congregation, the peace of the Lord be with you always. And the response there is neither and also with you or and with your spirit, but the response there is amen. Because at that point, the pastor is not greeting the congregation. He's actually blessing them or better yet, showing them the blessing that the Lord has provided in the body and the blood. And so that's a, a little third exchange that happens in the liturgy that's really beautiful. This body and this blood is the peace of the Lord. It is our justification. It is our righteousness before him. It is the confidence that all our sins are forgiven. And we're not giving that back. We're just receiving it as a gift. And to that we say, amen. What about the use of the Lord be with you as simply a Christian greeting outside its use in the liturgy. Yeah, it's great. And I think we should try to sanctify our language in this way. The Lord be with you. God's peace be with you. The Lord bless you. Lord have mercy. In fact, Luther talks about this in the large catechism as a way to keep the second commandment, to, to hallow the Lord's name, is that we're always greeting one another in the Lord's name. So I, I think that's wonderful. The Lord be with you and also with you. That's great. Mr. Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. We are, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Joe has a question on the other side about the lifespan of men before the flood and the amount of sin accrued in their lifetimes. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we launch into the prophet Micah with The Lord is coming, exile is coming, woe to oppressors, do not preach, and rulers denounced. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendorse.org or on your favorite podcast provider. 
Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman, in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home, with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe or visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are answering your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, there is a question from Joe in Ohio. He says, before the flood, men lived hundreds of years. By logic, they would have had more time to sin. Would it be true that a 500-year-old man who died condemned would have a greater condemnation than a 50-year-old man? Yeah, well, the issue here is not really the amount of sin. I mean, so we don't want to try to count. That's the way of the old Adam is to try to keep a record of sin and try to tally up uh, the the points, if you will. And keeping track is in a transaction. If I have uh, so many numbers of sins that I've committed, then I need so many uh, merits to make satisfaction for those sins. So yes, of course, they would have had an opportunity, a much longer opportunity to sin. But 
even within a shorter lifetime, one individual may sin much more than another. I mean, we, of course, are told about the, the prostitute who was washing the feet of Jesus, and she sinned much. And because she sinned much, she understood the significance of the forgiveness of all of her sins, that Christ had made satisfaction for all. And so the one who knows all the sins that one has done and recognizes that, realizes it, rejoices even more in the forgiveness of sins that Jesus gives. So I think that we always want to focus on the forgiveness of sins. And so it's a totality that Jesus died for all sins, the sins of the whole world, all the sins I've committed, all the sins that others have committed, the sins that have been committed in the past and the sins that have been committed in the future. So again, our eyes should be on Jesus and the forgiveness and the satisfaction he's made for whatever number of sins it may be. Melody in Virginia says, I have two questions, Pastor Wolf Miller. First, when would insects as we know them have entered the world? Second, is the reason men study for the ministry are in seminary for three years because the apostles spent three years with Christ? So let's deal with the insect question. Yeah, it's uh, the creepy crawlies are appointed for day six. So that's when the Lord is filling up. Remember, the, there's this kind of uh, chaos and emptiness that marks the creation, and the Lord is bringing out of that chaos and emptiness an order and a fullness. So the order of land is brought about on day three when the Lord divides the land from the sea. And then the land is filled up on day six, and that's when the Lord creates the beasts and the creeping things and also Adam and Eve. So day six is the day for insects. It's after the fall that those insects get all their pointy, thorny parts, I think, and they become mosquitoes and, and all of the other things. But uh, we want to point to day six for those for the, for the creeping things, as the Bible calls them. And the second one is the typical time that men may spend at the seminary studying for the pastoral ministry. Yeah, it's nice that Jesus had his apostles for three and a half years. His ministry was three and a half years. Probably, though, the full-time following of Jesus is about two years, the last two years of Jesus. So we know that there's a time when Jesus is solo at the very beginning. He has a few disciples, maybe not all of them. They follow him around for a few miracles, like Miracle Cana, the early cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. And then it seems like they go back to their work, because then later on, in the beginning of his Galilean ministry, Jesus comes and he calls them from their fishing to come and be full-time students. So it wasn't like the 12 were with Jesus for the entire three and a half years of his ministry. They would have maybe at the beginning been sort of part-time, and then they become full-time for the last couple of years. There's the amount of time that a pastor studies is just our own thing to figure out. So the Lord hasn't told us how long a man needs to be trained to be a pastor. So we're always trying to balance the, I mean, this is the point, is nobody's ever ready. So you could go to seminary for 25, 30, you could go to seminary for 150 years and you still wouldn't know the Bible well enough to be a pastor. And we're trying to balance this out. How much time do we need to get so that guys can be qualified for ordination? But of course, every pastor is a perpetual student and recognizing that the Lord is always preparing us and teaching us. It seems like three years, three and a half, four years is our human wisdom on on what's necessary and what's possible and what's to do. So I don't think it's connected with the time of Jesus' ministry, although it's nice that it matches up. Kathy has a question, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. In the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus descended into hell. Jesus didn't go to hell for three days, did he? He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Yeah, we, we don't want to look at it as numbering the days. You know, how many days was he in hell? Was he in hell at a certain period of time? That what we confess is that Jesus goes to hell in a victory, a victory parade. It's a parade that he has, that he has the victory. So he was crucified, died, and buried. And so then he, he of course, descends into hell. This is the vindication. This is when Jesus is victorious and he is now doing the victory dance in hell. So it's not that he's suffering in hell. So we want to be very clear on that. It's not that he's suffering for an amount of time in hell. All of it has been finished upon the cross. So I don't think we want to try to number the days or the amount of time he was in hell, just the fact that he was in hell with victory. This is the exaltation of Jesus beginning there. David in California, in light of Pastor Wilkins' recent article in the Issues Etc. Journal on Conspiracy Theories, I wanted to see if you have a biblical take on the flat earth versus globe earth. I find the flat earth resurgence fascinating. I was curious if they have a biblical leg to stand on. There are many passages that deal with the construction of the earth from Genesis to Revelation. Does it move? Where are the corners of the globe? Is it a dome? Where do the heavens, earth, shale, and hell all dwell? waters above the sky. Some that are interesting are Genesis 1, 1 through 30, Revelation 7, Psalm 104, Isaiah 40, and Matthew 4, 8. It seems that there would be some conflict between the science astronomers and how the earth is presented in scriptures. I would love your interpretation on the subject. Thank you for all you do for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate issues and the kingdom blessed advent. So I want both of you to take a stab at this. And if you haven't read my article on the conspiracy theories. I'm simply pointing out the dangers and the implicit idolatry in many conspiracy theories. What do you want to do, Pastor Wolf Miller, with Flat Earth? Yeah, so I'm just going to give a couple of hints and then look forward to hearing what Pastor Ketchermeyer has to say about this. Every time you see people, there is a common thread that will argue that the biblical cosmology, the sort of structure of the universe, is a earth-centered flat earth picture in fact you'll see these pictures drawn out like the earth is flat and there's a dome over them and there's the pillars underneath and there's this canopy and it's asserted that this is how the bible understood the world to be and this then goes into how the biblical thinking was anti-scientific and how the copernicus being held up as a heretic and, and all these sorts of things that smells to me of all of the progressive move to either on the one hand discount the scriptures or on the other hand to separate the scriptures from history and reality and both of those moves I want to resist with everything I've got that the Bible would be discounted in any way I want to resist because it is the Word of God and this move this is where it normally comes into the church to separate the historicity and the scientific assertions of the scripture from real science and make the Bible like an old myth, I also want to resist those. And so I would like to say that there are ways of looking at the texts of the scripture that describe the way the world is that are not in conflict with the way that we understand the planets to be spiraler around the earth and all of the planets to be spiraling around the sun and the sun to be moving in the midst of the universe. I do not think that those things are going to be in conflict. And the people who want to put them in conflict always seem like there's a motivation there. There's a reason that they're doing it that's not simply, I'm just trying to take the text for how it is. 
What do you make of the way that creation is often described that many would say, or some would say, is describing not a globe hanging in space, but a, a some kind of flat thing with firmament set above it? <laughs> well, Todd, I, I, I think it's, it's ironic because in your article itself, I mean, you're talking about the conspiracy. And so you have on one end of the spectrum, if there's evidence that proves the theory, you say, look, this proves that it's a conspiracy. But if you find evidence against it, you say, look, this proves the conspiracy because the truth is being suppressed. So it's, it's one of those uh, funny things because you actually mentioned that in the article as an example of these things. So we don't want to get bogged down in this uh, flat earth thing where we have that, that kind of conspiracy theory that it's a win-win situation for somebody who calls it a conspiracy and says, I'm a flat earther. And so here's my proof. And that if you don't believe me, that's proof that you're suppressing the truth itself. We want to look at the scripture as the vision that God gives to us. So he gives the prophets the vision. They are seers, they're seers. They see what we cannot see. And then they describe to us what they see. And that's always going to be the key here, that they are teaching us something that we cannot see. I mean, so when you use that passage, like in Matthew 4, verse 8, about how the devil, Satan, took Jesus up onto a very high mountain so that he could see all the kingdoms of the earth, as if that was proof then that therefore, that means that there's four corners, it's flat, and he's so high in the air, he could see everything. Again, if you say this is proof, it's proof. If you say it's not, then it's it's proof that there's a conspiracy and you're trying to withhold the truth. But I, I don't think that the, the key there is that Jesus was so high up in the air and because the earth was flat, he could see everything, whereas if the earth was round, he couldn't see everything. That's really not the point of that text. I mean, the point of the text is the devil is a liar and a deceiver, and he is trying to usurp the authority and power of Christ. He's trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. And so God's kingdom comes with his word. And so we, we always want to hear what the Lord has to say. And when the prophets speak, like in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the text, it says, when it's these questions of meditation, do you not know? Do you not hear? I mean, you know and you hear from the word of God. You see with your ears because you see what you cannot see. And God gives you this revelation. And he says, has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, of course, God alone is the eternal one. God alone was there at the foundation, the founding of the earth. So a uh, foundation can both be used in a, a physical sense sense, like a foundation of a house, and it can also be used in the understanding of a founding, uh, putting something, instituting it, putting it into place at the foundation of the earth. So he alone is the eternal one. And even in that passage itself, Isaiah is using this language of trying to make a similar connection to what we see. So he says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That does not mean that the inhabitants are grasshoppers. It does not mean that uh, necessarily that the earth has a circle. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid and I looked up into the heavens and I thought the heavens looked like a, a circle to me, like a globe, like we were in a snow globe. I mean, that's what I thought as I, as I was a kid, just kind of looking around what I was uh, experiencing myself. But here you have this comparison of inhabitants, people, they're like grasshoppers to God. They're small, they're insignificant. Or this language of God stretching out the heavens like a curtain. I mean, this is the imagery of trying to explain that it is God alone who has the authority and the power to create everything out of nothing. And to him, it's just like as if you were stretching a curtain 
I mean, it's that simple. You just take a curtain, you open it up, you close it, and it's that simple for God to create everything out of nothing. So this idea that he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and he spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Okay, not that it's a tent per se, but understanding the idea of of a dwelling place and how simple it is if you set up a tent. This is God who is the creator of all things, can create things by opening up the heavens into a dwelling place, creating something that did not exist before. And so I think that you really want to look at these passages in that way, where God is describing things to us that we cannot see with our own eyes. Or in that Psalm 104 passage, when you're saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. So you notice this, as with a garment. I mean, so you're trying to describe this, that he's the one who's stretching out the heavens like a tent. He's the one who lays the beams of his chamber on the waters. He's the one who makes the clouds his chariot. So the idea of the clouds being a chariot, that he, he comes in the cloud, he moves in the cloud, a reference to, of course, the Exodus, that God is present physically, tangibly in the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that he comes to be promising his presence with his people in something that they can tangibly see, or he rides on the wings of the wind. I mean, this is this imagery of trying to describe this. And then he makes his messengers, his angels like winds, his ministers as a flaming fire. And he's the one who set the earth on its foundation. So it's just, it's describing God who alone is the creator of all things and everything else, including the angels, the angelic beings, the messengers, they are created things, but God alone is the one who creates the foundation of the earth, that it should never be moved. So he's the one who sets it into place. He's the one who covers up the deep as with the garment and the waters stood above the mountains. So this is all just describing who God is and his actions and how he comes to do things. Pastors Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolf Miller are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Both of them are graduates of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. On the other side, a question about whether or not Lutherans are cessationists. Listen to the best of the church's music for the Advent season at lutheranpublicradio.org. Sacred music for the Advent season, lutheranpublicradio.org. With the oldest deaconess program of the LCMS, Concordia University Chicago has fully certified young women for the deaconess vocation for more than 40 years. I'm Deaconess Kristen Wasilak, Program Director for Deaconess Studies. 
Help us identify the next generation of servants to care for souls, engage our communities in mercy, and teach God's Word. Learn more about Concordia Chicago's Deaconess Program today at cuchicago.edu, cuchicago.edu. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is what we believe and confess at Grace Lutheran Church in Rochester, Minnesota, and we apply this verse through the reverent, joyful, and traditional divine service. If you live in Rochester or are visiting, we invite you to join us for the divine service on Sunday at 9 a.m. or Wednesday at 6 p.m. Our website is gracebythelake.org. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer are our guests as we respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Jason in North Carolina, are Lutherans cessationists? So, Pastor Wolfmiller, what is a cessationist? Cessationism refers to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and if they are still active in the church or not. And so this comes out of the charismatic renewal and revival movement, the Pentecostal movement, where speaking in tongues was understood as an indication of the Holy Spirit, and people were understood to have the gifts of prophecy, of knowledge, special knowledge from God, of even performing miracles and healings, and so forth. And a lot of churches reacted to that by saying, no, those gifts belong especially to the time of the apostles, and they ceased after that, after the canonization of the scriptures. That would be the cessationist view. I suppose it's like amillennialism, in the sense that it was a, it began as a derogatory term. I think that Lutherans are cessationist adjacent. In other words, for all practical purposes, I think we say, yes, the gifts that are described in the book of Acts and that are described in the list of sign gifts in 1 Corinthians and Romans, that we understand these gifts to be associated with the apostolic age. I don't want to embrace full-on cessationism because because I don't think it's it's wise to say that the Lord can't do these miracles or give these particular gifts, but we are not promised these gifts. We are not commanded to look for these gifts. We are not to rely on these gifts. And the things that we see in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches today are not those gifts described in the New Testament. We can be plain on this. If you talk about the gifts that are showing up in the Pentecostal churches, not only are we not cessationists, like these are the gifts that the church had and then we've lost. No, the church, those gifts that the Pentecostals want to say that they're receiving from the Spirit, the church never had. This gibberish talk that tongues is some sort of angelic gibberish is not biblical. We see in the Bible that the gift of tongues was speaking in other languages, that the gift of tongues is the mark of the Holy Spirit. That is not biblical. Paul says that some speak in tongues, others do not, 
and that the gift of tongues is not a gift to be desired, much less can that gift be one that we make the mark of a Christian. That's an incredible abuse of that text. Perhaps the biggest abuse is the fact that the Holy Spirit comes with the fruit of self-control, whereas modern Pentecostalism wants one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's presence to be the loss of self-control. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's anti-Holy Spirit. That's exactly the opposite of what the Holy Spirit does. So the Pentecostal movement, which has made God a God of disorder rather than a God of order, must be rejected on grounds of the Scripture. And it's kind of a trick to say, oh, you're a cessationist, as if those gifts that they're manifesting are the original spiritual gifts of the early church. No, whatever's showing up in the charismatic circles is not what was happening in the in the early church. And so I know that's why I'm a little bit wary of the word, because it kind of is a little bit of a rope-a-dope on wrong footing as we enter into the conversation. Dana says, this is for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. Any sources in our culture talk about the importance of meditation for mental, physical, and spiritual health? I have heard a Lutheran pastor mention the value of solitude defined by learning to sit quietly. I've also heard it explained by others as guided imagery, thinking, or relaxing images such as the beach. It has been described as being grounded in the present, focusing on one's breathing, feet on the floor, body sensations, etc., is there ever a place for such practices, or are they always derived from Eastern religions? Well, okay, to start off with an answer to this question, anything that is a meditation on something other than God's Word, on one's own imagination, how you imagine things to be, is going to be a false image, and that's going to be a false image of God. It's going to be an idol. So that's going to be all the Eastern religions. It's not on the revealed word, the revealed knowledge of salvation that we have in the written word. So we want to be clear here about meditation. It has to be meditation with God's word. Without God's word, it will always be a man-made religion, or at worst, even something demonic straight from the pits of hell, that it's the devil who's deceiving with lying signs and wonders and all kinds of other things outside the word of God. So I think that when we, we look at meditation properly, it always has to have the word of God. And look at it this way. When you, you're talking about this language of breathing, feet on the floor, bodily sensations, okay, irregardless of whatever they're doing in uh, yoga and Eastern religions, think of it in this way, incarnational. So you are in the present. And so the idea of the present is you're breathing and you can realize that you you breathe in, you breathe out, you realize that you're, you're living right now in the present time. Or if you feel something, the sensation of feeling with your fingers, you're in the present time. I mean, if you're hearing something, you're seeing something, this is all in the, the moment not in the past. And so let me explain that. In the past is the things that have happened, the things that have been done, the things in which you have sinned, the problems that you have faced in the past. And the devil likes to use those to make us dwell upon the past and to dwell upon our sins and to have the guilt overcome and overtake us. So in a proper sense, if you are in the moment in God's word, your meditation, your focus is on the promises of God to you right now. The promise that in Jesus, your sins have been atoned for. The devil wants you to think about the past. So if you're in the present and setting your eyes upon Jesus, you're focusing on him, who he is, what he has done for you in the past, and what he is doing for you right now in the present. Or on the other side of this, if you are 
thinking about the things of the future. That's uh, worrying about tomorrow. That's dwelling upon things that might happen, all these possibilities. And that's where the devil wants you also. The devil wants you to think about the endless possibilities so that you are stressed out, anxious about your actions and what you could do to prevent these things. Now, notice, in essence, these are all meditations of your mind. You're either dwelling upon the past, you're dwelling upon the future, things that have not come yet, things that have not been done yet. But in the present, in the moment, you can dwell upon God's word. And so I think that's really the key that we want to see here. And like in Psalm 77, when you take the Psalms and you meditate upon the Psalms, you listen to God's voice in the present. So as you are reading through the Psalms right now in the present, you're not dwelling with your mind meditating upon the things in the past or with your mind daydreaming about the things that could happen tomorrow, but instead you're in his promised present with his promised presence with his word, his word of promise. So like in Psalm 77, if you drop down to verse 11, it says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. So you're thinking about what God has done in the past instead of what you have done in the past. So your meditation is upon the work of God, and especially creation and redemption, that he has created all things out of nothing, and he has redeemed all humanity with the precious blood of Jesus, and you are included in all of humanity. So I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? That's a question of meditation. So throughout the scriptures, whenever there's a question there, it's a question in which you you will contemplate, you will meditate upon God, on who he is and what he does. So what God is a great God like you, or you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob, and Joseph. Now, again, remember the Old Testament when we have this language of the arm of God, this is always teaching us a distinction between the, the plurality of persons, that the Father sends forth the Son, the arm is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who works creation, the one who works salvation. So your emphasis now is upon what God has done to create us originally in his image and likeness, and after the fall, what God has done to restore us into the image and likeness of his son, who is the true image of the invisible God. So the focus again is upon Jesus right now in the present. What he has done in the past, what he's promised, that your sins have been taken care of, they've been atoned for, and what he promises in the future. He promises to come to judge living in the dead, but right now we have a mediator, an advocate with the Father, an intercessor who intercedes for us between our sin and our wrath. He takes it upon himself. So our sin becomes his sin, his righteousness becomes our righteousness, so that we know on the last day, on the final judgment, we already know what the verdict is. The verdict is not guilty. For those who are in Christ, they are a new creation and there is no condemnation. So when we talk about meditating and contemplating properly, we have to do this with God's word. And God's word is always about the person and work of Jesus to bring forth our forgiveness, life, and salvation. Pastor Brian Kachemeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. we got a question about the Virgin Mary next.
How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? I've written a column for the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Do you need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Some place where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor Augsburg Lutheran, Shawnee, Kansas, Emmanuel Lutheran, Dearborn, Michigan, Grace Lutheran, Elgin, Texas, Emmanuel Lutheran, Hamilton, Ohio, Messiah Lutheran, Lebanon, Illinois. Our Savior Lutheran, Winchester, Virginia, Redeemer Lutheran, Scottsdale, Arizona, St. John Lutheran, Ray, Michigan, St. Paul Lutheran, Parkersburg, West Virginia, and Trinity Lutheran, San Bernardino, California. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, we'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Welcome back. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolfmiller, from Joan, a question... Even after the birth of Christ, the Bible refers to Mary as the Virgin Mary. Was the birth natural? Then her womb was sealed by the Holy Spirit, so she remained a virgin. Also, did she and Joseph have other children, or were the people living with them cousins instead of brothers and sisters? It's a good question. It is interesting to me that this question is thought of as kind of silly or foolish by the church today, and 
almost everyone looks at the evidence that we have in the Gospels and says, well, look, yeah, Jesus had, had brothers. Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born, so he had half-brothers, and they're mentioned there. It's true that the Bible talks about the brothers of Jesus. But if you were to go back, I bet, 70 years in the church and asked people, it would have been almost across the board thought otherwise, that the only child that Mary had was Jesus, and that the discussion of Jesus' brothers was either a discussion of the children of Joseph or of the cousins of Jesus. We know that he did have cousins named the same name that he had brothers. It's a phenomenally interesting thing to me. I don't know exactly what it means, but really, you go back 70 years and and it just like all of a sudden switches 100%. So you go back to the early Lutherans in the Missouri Synod, like Francis Pieper, C.F.W. Walther, and they would have believed that Jesus was the only child of Mary and that Mary was a virgin both before Jesus was born and after Jesus was born. And this is captured by Luther almost thoughtlessly when they translate his small cult articles from German into Latin. Mary is called the Ever-Virgin, and Calvin thought this, Zwingli thought it, Luther thought it, the Catholic. It was the thought in the church that Jesus had half-brothers was an outlier thought until 70 years ago, and then it just completely reversed. Francis Pieper, when he's talking about this, says that this is a question of history. So we don't know for sure in the Bible. We can't say one way or another. Martin Chemnitz spends a lot of time working with the word until in Matthew, which, where Joseph, it says that Joseph didn't know Mary until the child was born. And Chemnitz will indicate grammatically that that until does not indicate a change. So it doesn't tell us anything positive about what happened afterwards. It only tells us what happens before and so forth. And so the Lutherans actually spent a lot of time doing some work to indicate that Jesus was the only child of Mary. But again, Pieper says that since it's a matter of history, a person's orthodoxy cannot be determined on what they think of the question. And I think that's probably a pretty fine way to think about it, that we just don't have enough evidence in the scripture. It does indicate how we think of tradition, if we have a generous view of church tradition or not, how we come down on this question. But that's the kind of the state of the question. I used to teach, by the way, Sunday school on this every Christmas about the question of the perpetual virginity of Mary until one lady said, Pastor, every year you ruin Christmas by making us think about these things. So I don't I do not do that anymore, but I, I do think it's a good way for us to think about not only how we look at the scriptures, but how we look at church history and how we try to stand in, in line with the broad strokes of interpretation on these questions. In that vein, Pastor Wolf Miller Kevin says, I'm a new listener to Issues Etc., and for full disclosure, not a Lutheran. That's not a problem. Certainly a supporter of everything I hear so far. I'm a conservative evangelical Christian. I was wondering, what is the historical view of Mary in the Missouri Synod and or in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod or the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the three conservative Lutheran church bodies in America. More generally, what is the view of Mary? Yeah, let's take just the Book of Concord, so the Lutheran Confessions, and the, and compare it to the Catholic tradition. So there's, in the Catholic tradition, there's four and maybe a fifth great Marian doctrine. They are the Theotokos, that Mary is the mother of God, the bearer of God, the Semper Virgo, that Mary was always virgin, the Assumption of Mary into heaven, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and then the idea that Mary is the co-redeemer. Not official Catholic dogma yet, but probably pretty close. The the Lutheran confessions embrace the first one wholeheartedly, that Mary is the Theotokos, the bearer of God. 
And this is important. It's actually saying less about Mary than it does about Jesus, that Jesus is the God-man. He's God in the flesh. So when Mary is the mother of Jesus, she marries the mother of God, just like the tomb is the tomb of God and the death of Jesus is the death of God. And that's a confession that the early church made to cut the line between the Nestorian heretics who wanted to separate the two natures. So we confess that. The second Marian doctrine, the Semper Virgo, is, is again, because it's a question of history, is not considered a question of orthodoxy. So while most Lutherans in history confess the Semper Virgo, that Mary didn't have any other children, it's not common today. It's a curious question. It's not a determiner of orthodoxy. This, the last two Marian doctrines, the Assumption of Mary and the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption of Mary some people will argue that Luther held to it. It, again, is a question of history. Could the Lord have taken Mary into heaven apart from her death? Yes, he could have. Do we have any indication that he intended to do that in the Scripture? No, we do not. Is the history, how do we think of the tradition of that? It's a bit tenuous, but it, it, it becomes a question of history. Most Lutherans don't hold to the assumption of Mary it's a tricky question for the Catholics, too, because they both hold to the assumption of Mary and also talk about where Mary was buried, so that's a tricky thing. Where we get into a solid disagreement is with the Immaculate Conception. Most people hear the phrase Immaculate Conception and think it's talking about the virgin birth, that Jesus was immaculately conceived. No, in the Catholic tradition, this refers to the conception of Mary, that Mary herself was conceived apart from the stain of original sin, and so that Mary's flesh did not have a sinful nature. You can see places where Luther would reflect that language, but I think as in a general term, the Lutherans would reject that doctrine just by the plain statement of Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and really that it doesn't solve any problems. I mean, if Mary was immaculately conceived so that her flesh would be perfect for the conception of Jesus, why couldn't the immaculate conception simply happen? when Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. It also has to do with our doctrine of original sin, if it's passed down through the Father, and so forth. So the Lutherans reject that, and then when it comes to the fifth Marian doctrine, again, not official, that she's the co-redemptrix, we reject that outright as idolatry. The positive view of the Lutherans for Mary is the same positive view that we have of all the saints, and that is, number one, we thank God for using them as he did, so we especially thank God for using Mary to be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we honor her and proclaim her to be blessed, as she herself says that all generations will call her blessed. So we thank God for the gift of the Incarnation that he worked through Mary. We thank God for the mercy that he showed through Mary, as Mary herself praises God for the mercy shown to her. And then number three, we attempt to emulate Mary according to our vocations, so especially mothers and wives, give thanks to God for Mary as a godly example of what it means to be a mom and so forth. And in that way, we extol her as the scriptures would have us. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions alongside with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. A question for Pastor Ketchelmeyer from Dennis. Should we judge another person's spirituality is up next. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can donate online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. For a year-end gift of $250 or more, 
we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2023. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, cph.org slash witness, or our website, witness.lcms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Confessional Lutherans are invited to rent a four-bedroom, three-bathroom Table Rock lakefront home in the Ozarks. Table Rock Lake is a premier lake in the heart of the Ozarks for boating, water sports, and fishing. This log cabin-style rental sleeps 12 and is 30 minutes from Branson and 20 minutes from Silver Dollar City. Learn more by calling Swanson Estates, 713-855-2681. Be sure to mention Issues Etc., 713 713- 855-2681. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We are responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Lutheran Church Missouri Center pastor and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Fail. If you enjoy these episodes with Pastors Wolf Miller and Ketchelmeyer, please make a year-end gift to Issues Etc. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a financial contribution online at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Thanks for listening and thanks for including the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. Pastor Ketchelmeyer Dennis says, should we judge another person's spirituality? You, okay. So when we talk about judging here, we're really not to judge others' spirituality. This is always going to be the issues of the Pharisees who are not fair, you see, because they're always putting others under judgment. They're always judging other people's spirituality. I mean, that's technically what they're doing, is the level of spirituality. Because whenever you get in this game of you're trying to measure, you're trying to count your fruit or trying to count somebody's other fruit, the lack thereof, or what they ought to do because this is what you do, this is when that old Pharisee in you arises. So we're not to judge each other's spirituality, that others are at a different level than I am. 
instead, we always need to be careful to be humble and we are to examine ourselves. I mean, this is what uh, the Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. And he goes on to say, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And so whenever you're examining yourself, whether you are in the faith or not, it's do you believe the promises that are in the scripture itself? And so you want to look at your own self. You're not measuring fruit per se, but you're looking at do you agree with what God has promised that has been accomplished in Christ and is given to you through the gospel, the absolution, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Do you believe what God's will is for you in your life, as we have, of course, in the Ten Commandments, that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things? And of course, then, when you, you examine the teaching of a teacher, of a pastor like the Apostle Paul or the successors to the pastors in the preaching office, we want to be clear that when the scripture says such things as, well, Jesus says specifically in the scriptures, you shall not judge lest you be judged, okay? That yes, there's that level of you don't want to put others under judgment and be like a Pharisee. But we also know that Jesus teaches in John chapter 7 that we should not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And the only way that we can judge with right judgment is in accordance with the scripture. You compare it to the scripture. What does the scripture say? I mean, obviously, if somebody claims to be a Christian and is living in an outright unrepentant life of ruling sin, then you can say that it is against God's will because we know what God's will is. But when somebody says that I believe in Jesus, we are to take them at their word. That person, I should say, those people take them at their word or his word if it's an individual. But we don't want to be like Pharisees and judge other spirituality to see if it, it is at the same level of my own spirituality, putting others under judgment because they don't meet my standards. Everything must be judged in accordance with the word of God. And primarily, we want to examine our own selves to see if we are in the faith. I mean, that's really the big issue. Do we believe in Jesus or not? Anna says, Pastor Wolf Miller, faith deconstruction has become really popular nowadays. What are the reasons for that and how we Christians help our brothers and sisters who are going through the process of deconstructing their faith? What does that mean? You know, this is a big thing. And this is a great Roseboro question, too, because he pays attention to this. It's a trend now in evangelicalism to, quote, deconstruct the faith, which just looks a lot like becoming liberal to me. I mean, that's. it seems like that's what the outcome is, but it's like a roadmap to question fundamental assertions of the Christian faith under the guise of not being an all-out unbeliever. There is a way that we always want to be questioning ourselves so that our minds and thoughts and convictions line up with what the Scripture says. And it's good for us to realize that we receive our doctrines and our teachings from all sorts of different places. They just sort of show up and here's a conviction and there's another so that we can hold those up to the light of the scripture and say, is this helpful or not? And in that way, I wouldn't call that deconstruction. I would just call that learning. 
and conforming our minds to the mind of Christ, which is revealed to us in the Scripture. But that that sort of questioning of thoughts and convictions under the guise of deconstruction is going to be purging out like conservative conclusions from reading the Bible and coming up with more progressive ideas. At least that's what it seems like that's the roadmap for. So I think that's what's really happening. So I'm not 100% sure that when we're talking about someone deconstructing, we could be dealing with someone who's just honestly kind of wanting to make sure that their own convictions match up with what the Bible teaches. But a lot of times it's, I want to find a way for my Christianity to not be so offensive to all of my progressive friends. And and I'm afraid that that's normally what's actually happening underneath. At least that's my exposure to it. Gene in Illinois says, my Lutheran ears have always troubled over, they have washed their robes and made them white. If God is always the actor in our salvation, why did the Holy Spirit write they? Revelation 7.13, those who've come out of the Great Tribulation, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, how would you explain that? Yeah, so this language of washing, I mean, keep this in mind that in the book of Revelation, you also have a very similar verse later on in chapter 22, blessed are those who wash their robes. I mean, so it's the same thing. Uh, You're washing your robes. But keep this in the perspective of Acts chapter 22. So you have Revelation 22, but now let's jump to Acts chapter 22 with Paul. So Paul, of course, is murdering, he's threatening the people of God, those who are believers in Christ, and of course, his eyes are blinded, but Paul is told to be baptized. And so it's that whole message of Peter on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. So in Acts chapter 22, Ananias says to Paul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. I mean, this is what we said before. This is what the prophets do. This is what the apostles do. They're speaking in unison of voice, telling us what we cannot see with our eyes. They're giving us the vision. And the vision, of course, is always fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. But notice that Paul is going to be this apostle, a sent one who's sent out. And so he says, now, why are you waiting? <laughs> what are you waiting for? He says, rise up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So it, it is a, a call to baptism here. Have your sins be washed away by being baptized. So go and be baptized. And when you, you're baptized, you are washing away your sins in that sense. Of course, we know theologically that it's God himself who washes away the sins, that Christ himself is the one who's baptizing through the hands of the man who's put in that pastoral office, who is normally, commonly baptizing in the setting of the congregation. But it's Christ who's doing it. It's the Holy Spirit who's working this regeneration, this washing of regeneration and new renewal with the, the water and the Spirit and the words. The Holy Spirit is working there. So yes, we know that. And so it's that understanding of be baptized. And when you're baptized, wash your sins away. I mean, this is the, the reference to Paul. Or, or even you have this in Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah is calling them out because of their sin, harsh law, calling the city of Jerusalem like Sodom and Gomorrah with blood all over their hands. But then he tells the people, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and see 
ways to do evil, learn to do good and seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And so even in chapter one of Isaiah, this command, if you will, not law, but this directive to go and to wash yourself, it is always going to be pointing to something that God does in baptism. And so when you have like Cyril of Alexandria looking at that text, he can see this text as a text referring to something greater that we have in the waters of baptism than any other ritual washing, that it's in the waters of baptism that we have our sins washed away. And so you have Cyril of Alexandria saying this, commenting on Isaiah chapter one, since God is good, however, and he wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he, for his part, even opened up the way to salvation and bade them to get rid of their crimes, okay, to stop, to cease. It was a gift that they were justified. So here's Cyril of Alexandria saying it's a gift to be justified, not from the works of the law, but rather by faith and holy baptism. So notice that Cyril here is seeing baptism as the sacrament of justification through faith alone. So it's the working of God in baptism, but the promises there given to us that we've been crucified with Christ and we've been raised in his righteousness. And so this is what Cyril is referring to. I mean, it's it's wonderful. And so he then says, wash, make yourselves clean, that the law in olden times was prefiguring this in a shadow of something that we have foretold in the grace that comes in holy baptism. And so when you see these references of, of their, they've been washed in the blood of Christ, it's only the blood of Christ that can cleanse. It's in baptism that we have the promise that we have been crucified with Christ and our consciences now stand clean before God, not just a washing of the body with water, but granting us that clean conscience before God. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor, author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thank you. It was great to be here, Todd. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Brian, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the biblical canon with Pastor Don Stein. And on Friday, we'll have Craig Parton respond to the argument that the Trinity is a late construct imposed on the Bible. And we'll continue our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled, N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri is a proud sponsor of Issues Etc. 
And if you enjoy the relevant, Christ-centered teachings presented on this program, then you should come and join us at St. Paul's on Sundays at 9 a.m., where you will hear sermons that proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and enjoy in-depth Bible studies to help us grow as disciples. For more information, check us out at stpaullutheranwildwood.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.